Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to episode two, where we'll be challenging some of the common sleep myths that we hear about all the time as parents. A huge part of the work that I do is really normalizing biological infant sleep patterns and helping parents to not only understand, but also to accept their child's biological sleep patterns and sleep needs. I like to think of it as unlearning and relearning almost everything that you ever thought you knew about baby sleep. It's really impossible to set realistic and developmentally appropriate sleep goals and expectations without first understanding how babies are even meant to sleep and why they sleep the way they do. So what's the first question that most people ask new moms or new parents? It's usually, how is baby sleeping? Maybe, are they sleeping through the night? So the pressure for independent and consolidated sleep for babies is real and it's pervasive. I remember spending hours each day in my daughter's dark nursery trying to force her to sleep independently, and it was a total nightmare. I was going against my instincts every day because I thought it was my only option. As I discussed in the first episode, we even tried some some bouts of sleep training, although they didn't last long because it just didn't feel right to us. And that was only because I thought I had to. I thought it was the only way that I I could teach my daughter to sleep, and I thought that I even needed to teach my daughter to sleep, which is also incorrect. We thought it wasn't normal that our daughter wasn't sleeping independently. Even our pediatrician told us this and handed us a sleep training handout at her six-month appointment. I suffered from severe anxiety, and I actually don't remember much of my daughter's first six months of life, other than those dark days spent in the nursery and just how stressed I was in general about her sleep. Once I started doing my own research on how infants should be sleeping, we surrendered to our baby's needs and we began safely bed sharing out of total necessity. With that change, my mental health also greatly improved, and I was able to really enjoy my daughter and enjoy being her mother. A common concern and justification for sleep training is the mental health of the caregiver, but it's important to understand that not all perinatal mood and anxiety disorders stem from sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is brutal, and it's a huge factor. Don't get me wrong. It absolutely contributes to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, but there is much more to mental health than sleep, and I personally think that it's an injustice to mothers to ignore all of the other factors and only focus on sleep and emphasize sleep training alone as a solution, and unfortunately, that happens to a lot of us. I've met and worked with dozens and maybe even hundreds of women that have similar experiences to mine. 
their mental health issues were caused or exacerbated by this societal pressure of infant sleep. And once they understood and accepted the realities of infant sleep, much of their symptoms resolved or were at least were more manageable. So we really have to acknowledge that encouraging mothers to go against their instincts and providing false information about infant sleep can have an impact on mental health. And I would actually say it does have an impact on mental health for so many of us. Our perception shapes our reality. If we believe that our baby should be sleeping or behaving a certain way and they don't, and nothing we do works to get them conforming to these societal norms, we're bound to be disappointed. Maybe we feel like we're we're failing. Possibly we feel like there's something wrong with our child or even with our parenting skills. We'll chat more about mental health in future episodes, but for this one, we're just going to focus on normal infant sleep. So let's break down some of these common narratives and ideas surrounding how our babies should be sleeping. Now, it's important to remember that every family needs to do what is best for you and that every baby is different. I'm also not making any recommendations to you here, but only providing the information for you. Use this information as a guide to help you make informed decisions. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to be in tune with your baby's needs and to follow your intuition. I also want to preface this by letting you know that I am never judging you for any parenting choices that you've made, even those related to sleep. I just think having this foundation and understanding of infant sleep is crucial so that families can make informed decisions. As a parent who began the process of sleep training and had a baby who I really believed was the worst sleeper in the world, I have empathy and compassion for you if you've felt like sleep training is your only option. I am confident that you're still a great parent. I truly believe that we need to be more open to having these vulnerable and often really difficult conversations in a shame-free environment. We can't just silence them, though, because, because they may bring up discomfort. That's a problem that I see too often, too, is that people who feel uncomfortable want to silence those that have different perspectives than them, and I'm not okay with that. So what does normal infant sleep look like? I want to go over some sleep myths or rather common societal expectations that we as parents, especially new parents, are often bombarded with. And I want to re-examine them within the context of biological infant sleep. So myth number one, babies need to be sleep trained. Many of us hear this often or something very similar to this kind of language. Things like your baby won't learn to sleep without you unless you sleep train them. Um, It's important for them to get adequate sleep for development, etc. The problem with this is quite simply that you cannot train a baby to sleep. Sleep is a biological process like elimination and babies know how to do this in the womb with no problem at all. Our job as parents is to create an an environment in which baby feels connected, secure, and safe enough to surrender to sleep when they're tired. We can support our babies with sleep and to sleep, but we cannot and we do not need to teach them to sleep. The other point I want to make here is that it's fully possible for a baby or a child to be getting adequate sleep while waking at night and while being supported to sleep. These things are not mutually exclusive. Which brings me to my next sleep myth. Society expects babies to sleep through the night. So that's a huge one, that babies should at some point be sleeping through the night, have consolidated sleep. 
The problem with this is really that babies do not sleep like adults, but society expects them to. It's ridiculous that we expect babies to abide by adult sleep standards and norms. Babies are actually designed to be wakeful, so they sleep in lighter stages of sleep as a protective mechanism, resulting in wakefulness. We really want our babies to easily wake up and signal to us when they are cold, hot, wet, hungry, or if they've stopped breathing. There's also more blood flow to the brain during these later stages of sleep, which is ideal for rapid brain development and growth, and that's what's happening to our babies, so it's, it's ideal for them. A recent study found that 57% of parents reported their six-month-old does not sleep through the night, and 43% of parents found that their 12-month-old does not sleep through the night. These results are actually probably on the low end because this particular study did not take into account whether babies were sleep trained or not. So the actual numbers would likely be higher in babies without any intervention at all. Think about it. As adults, we don't always sleep through the night ourselves. We often wake, but most of us are well-equipped with methods of self-regulation and coping skills to put ourselves back to sleep without assistance. But sometimes even that's difficult for us depending on the circumstances. Think about if you're sick or stressed, or maybe you have a lot on your mind. Sometimes that impacts our ability to sleep well. The same can be said of babies. So any developmental milestones, illness, teething, feeling disconnected, over or under stimulation, etc., can impact sleep. Babies are not really designed to sleep through the night. Through the first year and even beyond, it's normal for babies to wake. Myth number three, babies should sleep alone in the crib. Babies are actually designed to sleep near us. Research demonstrates that when baby and mother are sleeping in close proximity, they respond to each other's sensory signals and cues. Co-sleeping can help to regulate a baby's heart rate, breathing patterns, and reduce excessive nighttime crying. This is a co-regulatory evolutionary process which babies and mothers were designed for. It's also important to consider that babies under the age of one attach through the senses. So we're talking about senses like sight, taste, hearing, smell, touch, etc. Babies may feel alarm when they are separated from their caregiver for this reason because they cannot sense their caregiver. Separation is difficult for all children of all ages, but as the child grows and attaches in different ways, there are things that we can do to help them hold on to us when apart. Babies don't understand that when we leave, we'll come back. This object or person permanence starts to develop around six months or so, which is also why separation anxiety begins around this time. So the baby realizes that mom comes back when she leaves, but wants mom back now. Luckily, babies can form indiscriminate attachment relationships until around six months or so, so we can build our village in these early months to allow our child to have healthy, secure attachments with as many responsible adult caregivers as we would like. It doesn't have to be all us all the time, and it was never meant to be that way. We can foster these substitute attachment relationships even beyond six months. So this is really incredibly important for practicing self-care as parents and giving ourselves more breaks. But all that to say, babies who don't want to sleep alone are normal. This isn't a problem. They're designed to be near us, whether that's through safe bed sharing or separate surface co-sleeping. 
some babies will really have a harder time with the separation than others. So I just want to mention here that all of this behavior that I'm describing is normal for all babies, but it's also dependent on personality and temperament. Some babies will be just fine to sleep alone in their crib, and some babies will sleep through the night without intervention. So that's fine. The next myth is that babies need to learn to self-soothe. This is probably one of the myths that irks me the most. Babies are actually not capable of self-soothing. And when we're talking about self-soothing, this should really be referred to as self-regulating. And this is just a myth. When a baby gets to the point of being hyper-aroused or flooded, they're burning a lot of energy. The only way to support them back down out of this state is to help them down-regulate with us. They cannot do this alone. They rely on mirror neurons to kick in and mirror the caregiver's calm state. If a parent doesn't help them down-regulate, they'll go up the arousal scale and they could become flooded. At this point, the baby burns so much energy that they may fall asleep, but this is not because they have self-soothed, but it's actually the brain's last mechanism to protect itself from energy depletion. So this is from the work of Dr. Stuart Shanker, who studies self-regulation. So if you want to learn more about that, look into his work because it's really fascinating. What we now understand is that babies and even children aren't capable of self-regulation. Their brains are actually wired to co-regulate with a calm caregiver. It's only through hundreds, potentially thousands, and years and years of consistent co-regulation experiences that a child learns the skill of self-regulation. So it's completely normal and developmentally appropriate for babies and even children to need to be parented and supported to sleep. It's okay that your child needs your assistance to fall asleep. Now, I do want to clarify here that some babies, and again, this is really dependent on temperament and personality, some babies are capable of self-soothing more often than others. But when I'm talking about self-soothing or self-settling, I'm referring to babies who can put themselves back to sleep without signaling to their caregiver. So these babies aren't crying. This is a very different um, definition than the self-soothing that is talked about in the sleep training world. This is actually what the definition of self-soothing or self-settling is. It was never meant to be used to describe a baby that was crying out by themselves. It's been taken out of context. Some babies can settle or soothe themselves when they are already in a regulated state. They can soothe themselves to stay regulated, to stay calm, and then possibly put themselves to sleep. But babies cannot self-regulate when they're in a dysregulated or a stressed state. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will chat about a few other sleep myths. You guys, I'm so excited to share active skin repair with y'all. I started using this product a few months ago with my family, and it has replaced so many different products in my medicine cabinet. We are always looking for more natural, non-toxic solutions and active skin repair replaces Neosporin and ointment um, and all kinds of things. And it really can be used for so much. It can be used for minor wounds, cuts, 
burns, chafing, rashes, insect bites, really any skin irritation. I even have been using it for diaper rash and irritation recently, and it's amazing. And the great thing about it is that it is non-toxic, it's antibiotic-free, and it doesn't sting. So it's safe to use around the head, the eyes, the mouth and the ears and it really works so you can go to bldgactive.com and use the code taylor to save 10 percent off of your order and get free shipping welcome back where we are dissecting some of these really common sleep myths um, and sleep ideas that we often hear about as new parents and so we're talking about those and the next one is that you can spoil a baby or that a baby is manipulating you with their cries. So the problem with this is that it's just not true. Crying is a form of communication. And for young babies, it's their only way to communicate with us. They can't they can't speak to us. They can't verbalize their needs. So signaling to us via crying is how they tell us about their needs. We are literally designed to have a negative response to these cries for a reason. Our instincts usually, for most people, tell us to answer these cries and to respond to our baby. And again, that's for a reason. This is how we're designed. Babies aren't capable of manipulation. They only have needs and the need for connection and closeness to you or to a caregiver is just as valid as the need to have their diaper changed. You cannot spoil a baby. When you practice consistent, responsive parenting, you teach your baby that the world is a safe place and that people can be trusted. These early years really do set the foundation for how your child will view the world and view their relationships in the future. So the next myth is regarding night feeds. And I hear, I get messages like this all the time in my in my direct messages folder um, from some of you who are sharing with me what your pediatrician, often it's what your pediatrician has told you. Um, sometimes it's what family or friends have told you, but It often centers around the idea that at a certain magical age or even a certain weight, babies should no longer need to eat at night. So it's often either at four months or most often I probably hear at six months, all of a sudden babies are magically capable of sleeping through the night and they no longer need night feeds. Um, Sometimes it's at 10 pounds. I've heard that one too quite a few times. So frankly, I think this is ridiculous and there's no evidence to suggest this. And I have no idea where it came from and why pediatricians are are giving parents this information. I know that not all pediatricians are giving parents this information. I know that there are some great pediatricians out there, but unfortunately too many pediatricians are giving parents this outdated um, and unfounded information. And the truth is, is that babies get hungry at night especially for an an exclusively breastfed baby. Milk is digested very quickly. And most babies under the age of one do still need to feed at night. And often toddlers may need night feeds. So whether a baby or child needs night feeds is really complex and it's dependent on several factors. So these one size fits all rules are really just inadequate. They just don't work. It's so complex and it's a disservice to our children to just say, at a certain age, you know, give these arbitrary rules, no longer feeds are night feeds are no longer needed. It's also important to remember that nursing is just is not just for nutrition alone. 
Nursing is also for comfort and pain relief and bonding or attachment. And all of these needs are valid needs. It's okay for parents to make changes. So it's okay. You know, there it's okay. There might be a time where a mother, a breastfeeding mother, um, is starting to feel a bit resentful or just feels like she cannot nurse at the frequency at night that she she currently is. And so it's okay for that mother to try to make respectful changes and limit um, comfort feeds, for example, while still providing their baby with nutritive feeds. That's okay. What I'm not okay with is this external source, this pediatrician, this family member, et cetera, the sleep coach, telling a family, telling a mother that she should no longer feed her baby at night, especially if this mother is okay with feeding her baby at night. So when we're when you're making changes like this, when you're trying to do a bit of night weaning, which I don't recommend full night weaning until at least 12 months of age, and even then, whether your 12 month, 12 to 18 month or so needs night feeds at night is dependent on a lot of complex factors. Um, they should be making those decisions because they need that change, not because some external source is telling them this is the way it needs to be. Early night weaning can also negatively impact breast milk supply, and it often results in breastfeeding relationships ending earlier than mothers desired. So I've heard this story many, many times um, that a family starts sleep training at four months or so, maybe six months, and they night wean. They're attempting to night wean through sleep training. And all of a sudden, their breast milk supply tanks. And the the, bre- the breastfeeding relationship ends earlier than, than they desired it to. And this is a big factor in this. Night feeding is really huge and important in helping to maintain breast milk supply, especially in those early days. But even, even throughout the first year, that can be important. Now, if your baby on their own is not feeding at night, that's fine too. The next thing I want to talk about isn't really a myth, um, but it's we have a. I think there are some misconceptions about what it is. So we're going to talk about sleep regressions and the dreaded sleep regressions. And I actually think that sleep regressions should be called sleep progressions because this is when baby is actually going through a time of massive brain development. They are actually progressing in their development. So I think that the term sleep regression sounds really negative and it can really, um, I think, be a difficult term to hear and to focus on, especially if you are a sleep-deprived, vulnerable parent. Um, You can feel like it's more of a negative thing. So I like to reframe it and call it a sleep progression. Sleep progressions can be really tough time for babies, which is why they usually need us more. They may be more clingy. They may not want to be set down at all, and they may nurse more frequently. So these can be growth spurts. These can be due to cognitive leaps. Um, It can be due to learning motor milestones like rolling, crawling, sitting, uh, standing, walking even. It can also be caused like by things like teething and illness. So it's very normal for, for babies to go through periods of time where their sleep is more disrupted than normal. And during these times, they often just need us to comfort them and make them feel better because their world is quickly changing and it can be overwhelming and maybe even scary. The last kind of set of sleep myths or just false narratives that um, that are prevalent in our culture 
is this idea that you are, us as parents, that we are creating bad habits or negative sleep associations by supporting our babies to sleep. So when you do things like rocking or nursing or um, snuggling your baby to sleep, it's you kind of it kind of gets a bad reputation as something that's negative. Maybe it's been called a sleep crutch or a bad habit or um, a sleep prop is the other common term that I hear. The truth is that the only bad habits or negative sleep associations are ones that are not working for you as the parent or for you as the family. Sleep associations in general are actually good. We all have them. Think about the things you do before bed or the things that have to remain constant for you every night in order for you to fall asleep easily. So maybe you have a certain pillow that needs to be in just the right position, or maybe you have your essential oils going or a sound machine on. So building your toolkit of sleep associations for your child is actually, it can be more helpful than limiting your toolkit because it allows your baby to be put to sleep in a variety of ways and maybe environments easier. So when you want to start removing sleep associations that don't work for you or that you don't want to do anymore, you can do that and you have some other sleep associations in your toolkit to fall back on, which can help make that process a bit easier. So you are not creating bad habits by rocking, holding, cuddling, or nursing your baby to sleep. Again, this is okay and it's completely normal for our babies to need us to parent them to sleep. And in fact, nursing to sleep, which is one that I hear about all the time, it's one of the most common associations that most parents that come to me are trying to change. Um, But nursing to sleep is the biological norm. There is a reason for this beautiful physiological design that helps both baby and mom to relax and to surrender to sleep due to the, the hormones that are released during breastfeeding. There will always be opportunity to change patterns if they begin to to not work for you, if they stop working for you. And this is what I often help families with. For example, say a mother is still nursing her two-year-old to sleep every night and this child is not able to get to sleep any other way. I would work with this family to gently shift patterns, add in some new sleep associations, and support the inevitable emotion from that child that will accompany the shift or the change in patterns. And then oftentimes people will say that if you allow your child to sleep with you or depend on you to get to sleep, they'll never sleep independently. And this is just unfounded. The research actually shows us that children who have co-slept often have higher self-esteem, better grades in school, they're more comfortable as adults with affection, they have less anxiety, and they often have a feeling of satisfaction with life. And I don't share this information to imply that if you don't co-sleep, your child will experience some of these issues because I don't think that's true at all. I just share this to reassure you and to validate you if you are a family who has chosen to co-sleep that your child is going to be just fine. You are not ruining your child um, or creating issues by co-sleeping. I truly believe that families, children can co-sleep or not co-sleep and still turn out amazing and still be thriving. It really just depends on what works better for for the family. Research has also shown no difference between co-sleepers and non-co-sleepers in sleep disturbances, separation anxiety, or nighttime phobias. 
Dr. Gordon Newfeld states that we must invite dependence in order to facilitate independence. This is the design of a child-parent relationship. They're designed to depend on us to meet their needs so that when developmentally appropriate, they feel secure and can begin to venture forth, develop their own identity, and become independent in their own time. When we force independence too early before they're ready, we're actually hindering it. So that's all the sleep myths that we'll be talking about today. We didn't touch on everything, um, but I hope that this at least brings you a bit of comfort in knowing that it's very likely that your baby is functioning completely normal as they should be. And that really it's our understanding and our perception of how our babies should be sleeping or how they are meant to sleep is what really needs to be changed, not our babies. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.